Um, I just watched the movie Lincoln. Um, politics seemed to bring to some people a great things. You know, um, um, Lincoln really rises to the occasion. But then politics also seemed to bring out the worst in people, and many, many people as well. I don't know that much uh, about the political system in Hong Kong, but when I watch the American system, I'm just constantly so frustrated by it because it seems so dysfunctional. But it's not just American system, actually. I've seen clips of Korean politicians sort of swinging at each other, and I know that's not isolated in Korea either. That's in other places as well. Corruption, backstabbing, political intrigues are found everywhere. And it was so in Israel 2,000 or 3,000 years ago. After the death of Gideon, that great leader who saved Israel with 300 people, there is, he dies, and there is a bit of a power vacuum. And like many power vacuums, it doesn't last too long, and Abimelech rises to fill the gap. He's the son of Gideon, but a, a son of a concubine, as we'll find out later on. He's a leader. He becomes a judge in Israel, but not a very good one. And there are many things I think we can learn from this chapter, but I want to focus on these three things. The horror of sin, what it means to sin, and the effects that it has on people. Um, And not, not just that, but the hope of God's sovereignty, how God still works out his plan. And how uh, the the, the hope of God's judgment um, as well. So let's turn uh, to our passage. So um, just a way of review quickly. Judges, book of Judges, like I said, starts from the top. It goes from a good judge and then it sort of spirals down. And we're almost towards the end. We have Abimelech and then we, we will have Sam, uh, we'll have Jephthah and we'll have Samson. And as you'll see, it just goes out of control. Um, and, uh, it, uh, as the, uh, as Judges progresses. And Abimelech is almost an anti-judge. He's everything that a judge is supposed to be not. He is godless. If you think about it, all other, book, all other judges are called by God. God calls them. God raises them up to be a judge, to save Israel. But that's not the case with Abimelech. Abimelech rises to the scene through human means, through his association with his father, to his father, Gideon. But that's not enough. He has to use his guiles and trickery to become the judge. As, we'll see in, as we see in verse 1, he goes to Shechem, where his mother is from. And he pits his mother's family against his father's family. He asks in verse 2, Do you want 70 sons of Gideon rule over you, or just one? I mean, it's a rhetorical question, really, because if you had 70 leaders... That's a country divided, isn't it? He's saying, one is better. And then he sneaks in this reminder at the end of that verse. Remember, I am your flesh and blood. And so he persuades his countrymen to make him the leader over Israel. And when Shechem grants their support, they give them uh, some money. He uses the money to hire thugs. And with them, he goes to his father's town. And we're told in verse 5 that with one stone, he kills all his brothers, sons of Jeroboam or Gideon, all except Jotham. As we read this passage, there is so much evil here. But remember, God calls judges to save Israel. And but Abimelech does the opposite. He doesn't save Israel. 
He goes, he's thirsty for power, so he kills not only his countrymen, but his brothers, um, his family. And once he gets there, he does not save or rule Israel with God's power, but with his own strength. He is the epitome of a godless leader. And no wonder that he does not ever uh, invoke uh, God's name uh, here in this passage at all. He is sinful, and the consequences are horrible. But if you think about that, if you think about who Abimelech is, it doesn't actually just come from him. It seems to be rooted somewhere else. He, I mean, he is a person who is responsible for his own actions, but he's influenced uh, by others. And I think namely his father Gideon. It goes back to Gideon and who he was. So if you go back to chapter 8, verse 30, we find that Abimelech is born through a concubine. We find that he's got multiple wives. He has 70 different, he has 70 sons. And in case of Abimelech, we can find, we can sort of guess how he became the person uh, that he became. Because if you think about all his brothers, his 70 brothers are legitimate brothers. They had the the, uh, legitimate um, claim to the leadership of Israel. But he is a, a son of a concubine. He's probably alienated from the uh, rest of his family. He's probably seen as the weaker one or the one that sort of... Uh, uh, the, 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 um, oh, gosh. Um, the word for a person who sort of sits at the outside. Outcast. Outcast of his family. So it's not difficult to see how he might have grown up with this sort of resentment in him. And he took it out. He takes it out when he gets his chance. And it will become even more clear uh, how Gideon affects uh, shaping of, uh, shapes uh, who Abimelech is. And we often think of sin as affecting us, ourselves alone. But it actually extends, in many cases, to the next generation, in many cases, to the people around us. Who knows uh, with our limited view? So Abimelech, we find once again, is a bit like his dad in a different way. He's vindictive like Gideon was. Remember how Gideon pursued his enemies. He goes and pursues his enemies when he is tired. And then he asked, he asked for help to, uh, to, to, to two different cities. And when the cities refuse to help them, he goes and destroys those two cities, cities of Succoth and Paniel. Do you remember that? He goes and skins the people of Succoth. He actually kills... Uh, 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 the people of Peniel. And Abimelech seems to carry that sort of vindictiveness in him as well. When he becomes a judge or ruler over Israel, he, we see Jotham curses him, uh, which we'll talk about a bit later. As a result of the curse in verse 26, we're told that Gaal, um, Gael, um, who tries to overthrow Abimelech, uh, Gael tries to overthrow Abimelech from Shechem. But Abimelech does not take this lightly. When he hears of the news, he comes up at night with a troop. Abimelech, um, in verses nine, uh, 39 to 41, goes on his first campaign um, to uh, avenge um, Gael. Gael comes out of Shechem with his men to fight him. And Abimelech destroys him. Gael flees out of Shechem. And you think, that might be enough. Well, it's been avenged, justice restored, but that's not enough. The next day, he, uh, he wants more. 
he goes on his second campaign in verses 42 to 45. When the people come out of Shechem into the fields, probably to farm, which probably includes women there as well, Abimelech divides his troop into three uh, divisions, three companies, to attack them. And he kills the people who are out. And as if that is not enough, he takes salt and salts the city so that the, uh, the, the land would remain barren for the generations to come. But that, too, is not enough. We're told in verse 46 that the rest of Shechem now goes and hides into Beth Milo, the, um, uh, the tower for safekeeping. But when Abimelech hears that the, now, the rest of the people of Shechem have gone into this tower, he takes this as an, as an opportunity to uh, avenge uh, further. He takes... Um, he cuts down uh, branches off of trees. He tells his troops to do the same. And he takes these piles of branches, sets them against um, the, this tower, and sets them on fire. And we're told at the end of verse 49 that about a thousand men and women were burnt alive in that tower. But that, too, is not enough. He goes on another campaign at Thebes and tries to capture it and he tries to kill are the people there when he is killed by a woman? The woman drops a stone on his head and he dies. Oh, he doesn't die there. He doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to be killed by a woman, so he asks one of his uh, soldiers to kill him instead, and so he dies. That vindictiveness. Like father, like son, as people say, and this is what happens with Gideon and Abimelech. We often sin, and we think that we are only hurting ourselves. Gideon probably didn't think of much of what he did, taking so many wives, having so many sons. His vindictiveness um, as well. Uh, but this story illustrates the fact that the sin has a long reach. It affects people around us, and not just ourselves, but even also maybe multiple generations, generations to come. And I, I was trying to think of a good um, thing to illustrate this. Um, and uh, um, uh, pornography comes uh, to mind. Pornography, we often think of pornography as a sin that's private, sin that just affects us. But actually, it affects people around us. In fact, pornography is the biggest industry in, in, in the Internet. It's actually, well, for, for the most part, what keeps the Internet going, doesn't it? It also affects, uh, affects our relationship with women, men and women. Um, not just in sort of, uh, as we objectify women, it's hard to, uh, on screen, it's hard to relate to them in a, in a human way. Pornography, this private sin, affects people around us. It affects our marriages too, setting unrealistic expectations. Not just unrealistic expectations, but actually it gives a very... Uh, perverse view of what sex is about, that it's about me. It's about service of me, not about the other person. It affects all sorts of ways. A lot of sins that we think that are private affects people around us, the society around us. It might affect even the next generation. Our materialism in Hong Kong will shape the next generation, not just today. The treatment of our environment will bring about disaster, maybe now, but actually in the generations to come. Greed 
will affect not just people in Hong Kong, but in this uh, complex uh, economy, international economy, it'll affect people in China, people in the U.S., and people around the world. Our skewed value will influence the people around us. And the scary thing about all of this is that Gideon wasn't aware of the extent of his sin. And we will not be, we are not aware of the extent of the reach of our sin, the effects of our sin. We can't, we don't have that divine perspective that sees the gravity and the extent of our sins. And it's true. That God does forgive us for our sins. Our guilt is taken away on the cross as we trust in Christ as our Lord. But I want to say it doesn't take away the consequences often of our sins in this world. For example, when we lie, we might be forgiven for the sin of lying. But the lie sits there and it does its effects. Effects. If we have cheated, the one who has cheated will suffer the consequences. Marital unfaithfulness, ill Ill treatment of our co-workers, sin of idolatry or image have their consequences in this world. Even if we're forgiven for our guilt, even if, even as Jesus takes away our guilt on the cross. And once again, we will not know the full extent of the damage of our sin. So the first thing that I want to say out of this passage is sin is a horrible thing. Sin is a horrible thing. Do not take this lightly. In our temptations, in our moments of temptations, we often think, ah, well, I'll do this. Well, Jesus has forgiven our sin anyway already. Or I'll ask for forgiveness later on, don't we? But this must not be. Sin is a horrible thing, and it has its effects and consequences in this world, consequences that we won't even know about. But sadly, sin and its consequences dominate this passage, Judges chapter 9. Sin gives birth to more sin. And in times like that, this passage, in this passage, we ask ourselves, where is God in this? It seems God is absent. As Abimelech, this godless ruler, rules, we ask ourselves, what is God doing? But in the key moments in this passage, God makes sure that he's still in control, that he's still moving history. Although Yahweh, the covenant name of God, it doesn't appear directly in this passage, but it, it appears indirectly in verse 5 through, through Jotham whose name means Yahweh, is perfect. He was the sole survivor of that massacre of his brothers. 69 died, he survived. And as the citizens of Shechem crowned Abimelech, the king over Shechem and over Israel, he goes onto the top of Mount Gerizim, which is sort of right next to Shechem, and he shouts down, um, the story of the olive fig and, and, and vine tree and the, and, and the thorn bush tree in verses 7 through 20. The three trees were asked to be king, fig, vine, and uh, olive tree, which are useful trees, fruitful trees, things that, are, uh, that, that would be beneficial. But then they turn it down. They say, um, I'm not going to get in, uh, give up my fruitfulness in order to get into this. But when the thorn bush was asked to be king, 
This, it's absurd, isn't it, uh, that Thornbush would be asked to be king because it's a completely useless uh, tree. In fact, it, it says, why don't you come and hide under my shade? But that would be the most absurd and painful thing to come under its wings. Actually, it's only, the thing that it's really only good for is thornbushes, this bramble bush, uh, was often caught on fire. And out of that, it burnt other trees around it. That's how absurd that the lead, uh, having thornbush as a leader would be. But that, what Jotham is saying, this is exactly what you did. And after telling that story, Jotham curses the people of Shechem and Abimelech. He says in verse 20 that Abimelech's fire will come out and consume Shechem, and Shechem's fire will consume Abimelech. And of course, that's what happens. God brings that curse. Um, God realizes that curse. The story goes on to say in verse 23 that God stirred up this animosity between the people of Shechem and Abimelech so that God could repay the debt of 70 uh, of Gideon's, uh, Gideon's sons. What's amazing, I think, in this uh, chapter is the godlessness of the people on the surface level. Abimelech is godless. Yahweh is absent. But of course, he's not. He is in control over the whole situation. We often think, actually, that uh, God's will is in somehow competition to our will, that God has to wait for us to make our decisions um, in order to realize God's will. But the perspective of this passage in the Bible is consistently that that is not the case. That even as people against God wills to plot against God, God uses their will to bring, uh, uh, um, bring uh, to fulfill his will in this world. And at the end of the story, God punishes um, people of Shechem. God punishes Abimelech. Um, but also, uh, God destroys uh, the, uh, the um, uh, El-Berith, the, the uh, place of idolatry in the end. And so we read at the last couple of verses of this chapter, the conclusion in verse 56. Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jerubal, came on them. The conclusion of this passage is that God was at work. Through all the terrible things that happened, God was repaying people's sins. Once again, Rico will come in June, uh, June 1st, to uh, St. Andrews. But one of the things that he, uh, he says uh, that I think is really catchy is that it's a powerful God um, who can use the wills of his enemies to bring about his own will. And that, for us, I think is very, very important uh, for us to remember, especially as we go through times when we, have to, when we ask ourselves, where is God in all of this? Maybe it's in... Um, a time of turmoil in your life. Maybe you're going through difficult situations with relationships with your children, with your jobs, and you're just looking around the world and saying, God, where are you? In uh, American football, uh, there's a head coach who sits at the sidelines and he calls uh, the plays. American football, I think, is an underrated sport and I think you should all get into it so I can talk about it a bit more. But uh, it's a very strategic game and the coach uh, at the sidelines uh, calls these uh, plays. 
But, uh, because, but, but not just the head coach, uh, there are many other coaches um, there, uh, but one of the coaches sits at the top of the stadium. Uh, and the reason why this coach is necessary is because as it, when you're in the action, when you're at, at, at those two, two lines tackling each other, you have no perspective over the situation at all. What you see is the person in front of you. You have no idea what's going on around you. The head coach is a bit removed from the action. He's at the sidelines. He sees a bit more. But actually, that coach at the top is necessary. The coach sees the whole stadium. He sees the whole formation. He he sees the plays in the overall perspective, and he's able to inform the head coach as he calls the shots. And I think what this passage is doing is providing a perspective like that for us. Often, as we face our troubles, we have no perspective over the situation. We, we ask ourselves again and again, God, why is this happening? Why this? Why now? And this passage reminds us that God is in control. God is in control. He has an overall bigger perspective. He has his will that he's working out in history. Remember that God is in control. But as I say that, that doesn't mean, just because God is in control, that doesn't mean that everything will work out well for everybody. In fact, in this text, we're uh, reminded once again that it doesn't work out very well for many people here. God uses his control to bring judgment upon each person who sinned. Christ is in control over this world, and he's working his plans out. But at some point, and, and some will be punished for their sins, but some will go unpunished. And we are promised that Christ will return as the judge at the end of the day. Paul reminds the philosophers of Athens in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 to 31, that God now commands all men from everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed And of this he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. And that day will be a horrible day. You can pay for your sins, the guilt of your sins, in two ways. You can let Jesus pay for it, or you can try to pay for it yourself. And it will be a terrible day for those who will try to pay for it by themselves. But judgment, I want to say, actually is a good thing. I just want to, um, before I move, move on to uh, a bit more about judgment, uh, judgment is a good thing, isn't it? Because at the, there is a thirst for justice in us, and when we see wrong things, injustice in this world, we cry out for justice. And that justice, that thirst for justice, will be fulfilled on that judgment day. And not only that, actually it allows us to sort of go on in this world, in this world that is filled with injustice, knowing that God is our judge. If we didn't have this assurance of judgment, if somebody hits you, you will want to hit back, right? But then God says here, um, vengeance is his, that he will punish, that those who, are, who get away with things now will not uh, get away with things in the end. 
But I want to also say that this judgment will come upon Christians as well, in a different way, but it will come. And as I was reflecting about this, and I thought, what a horrible day in some ways it will be for all of us. On that judgment day, I think what will happen is we will find out the true extent of our sin. You know, the, once again, all the things that we think, ah, this just affects me or it affects a handful of people around me. We will find out the, the, the true extent of our sin. We will see our sins clearly as they are supposed to, as God sees it. And we will be horrified um, for the things that we have done. But the good news of that is that as it is being revealed to us, it will be revealed to us as sin that has been forgiven. Sin that God has paid for in his son, in the death of his son. And we will also realize that the life that Jesus lived, that righteous life, and the reward of that righteous life, how that has been given to us as a free gift for each one of us. So in a passage like this, I want to once again assure us that horror of the, of the horror of sin, remind us of the horror of sin. Sin is horrible. Sin is horrible. Don't sin. <laughs> Don't sin. Um, and I want to remind us that God is in control over our lives, even as things seem out of control, out of our control. And I want to uh, plead with you that um, as we consider the horror of sin and the, the, the prospect of the, the final judgment, that, that you do turn to Christ, that you do um, turn to Jesus to um, pay for the sins that we have committed. Let's pray. Lord, we look at the world and we do sometimes ask ourselves, Lord, where are you? Lord, we look at ourselves and the sins that we have committed. And Lord, we lament of our sins and its effects, their effects upon this world. But Lord, we thank you that you are God who is in control. That you are God who is working out um, your will, even as people rebel against you. And Lord, now we take out our faith, Lord, and apply it to our lives. We trust you as we go forward. And we pray that as our lives are transformed by the work of your Spirit in us, that we'll be instruments that for good in this world and not for evil. And we pray once again for all the people who don't yet know you. Um, that you'll help us to go and, and share this good news of Jesus to the people around us. Be with us as we go back to our homes and our workplaces. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Well, Jesus is worthy of all our praises uh, for the things that he has done and things that he will do um, in this world. Let's stand and praise him as we give our offerings. And once again, if you're a guest um, with us, do not feel obligated to give. This is really for the church family. If you can, uh, put a, a little, uh, the, the welcome uh, flyer, uh, welcome sheet in there. That would be great. Please stand.